And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime New England. What's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome back to a spooky Halloween special episode, spectacular, extraordinary, VIP, party time. We're so excited because it's not only a spooky, spectacular Halloween episode, but it's also a very spectacular, exciting party time episode, TM, because it is Elizabeth's birthday. What, what? While we're recording this, unfortunately, it is not my birthday, but this comes out on my birthday, October 26th, and in a crazy twist of events, your birthday also happened to be on a Thursday this year. So two months apart, we had birthday episodes, so that's pretty cool. So feels pretty neat and almost like it was written in the stars. I agree. And what better way to close out our spooky Halloween spectacular special episodes party time VIP TM episodes with a real party time episode, which is your birthday, Liz. Oh, my birthday. And not to mention, listen, your birthday obviously was very special. You turned 24. 24 is a fun age because it's a nice even number. <laughs> it's not too old. It's not too young. You're like just becoming really like that adult, you know? I am turning 25. So not only am I now old, but I also am at a quarter century of my life, you know, like a tech, technically speaking or whatever, I would hate to live to 100. That sounds miserable, but it just feels so different for some reason. I hope so, because a lot of people that I've heard about saying, you know, when I turned 25, I could feel my brain fully developing. Ah. So while we're recording this, your brain's probably like, I'm 97% there. <laughs> uh, God, I hope the last 3% is like happy pills. Because that would be really nice. Like, it w- like, what if the last 3% is all serotonin? Like, what if that's what I've been waiting for this whole time? <laughs> that would be so sweet. Oh my God, let me know. If I'm like, Liz, how are you on your birthday? And you're like, well, you know, I don't want to kill myself. So. Right. <laughs> That's probably a good thing. If there's a minor inconvenience and you're not like, I'm going to kill myself, then I'll know that your brain's like, did a little reset. We will definitely update you guys on how my brain function continues to thrive. But (laughs) that's all being said, I'm very excited. Birthdays are, let's admit it, birthdays are fun. It is a day about you. And no matter how much you don't like attention, I like a little attention, especially for my loved ones. That being said, Katie, we did just open uh, the gifts you gave me, which were, to nobody's surprise, and of course nobody being me because I'm the only one here, you got me excellent gifts. The card you got me was hilarious. We always get great cards. Our typical back and forth includes cat toys, which is the best, and candles with some crazy pun or like something silly on it, which is so fun and I love it and I expect it and I'm never disappointed. So stop talking. I'm listening to true crime or I'm listening to my podcast. <laughs> it's so cute. And then also a book on Lizzie Borden, which is so awesome and very appropriate for right now because it's Halloween. Right. In our very first Halloween series, we did Lizzie Borden. In fact, we ended with Lizzie Borden on our first 
series of Halloween Spooky Wookie Tickle Time Extravaganza TM episodes. So very fun. And plus a gift card to Thrift Books, which if you guys don't know, is an excellent website that you can get millions of books for literally like four cents. And they're good books. It's amazing. So thank you, Katie. Of course. I'm very excited. Other than that, you know, of course, everyone's been asking me, oh, what did you want for your birthday? Blah, blah, blah. And for the past like 12 years, I have no idea. Um, I just recently told my parents that I want a little green machine. Have you heard of that? No. It's basically a carpet steamer. So that's really fucking sad that I want that for my birthday. So being an adult is really fun. But nonetheless, like like I said, we're recording this before my birthday. So if I do get that from my parents, I will be over the moon. And that's really, really upsetting to me. It's the little things in life. It's it really the is. little, little, little things. But to be fair, I could really use one. So I have had a lot of cats and I do eat a lot of ice cream and I had rabbits that weren't litter trained and, you know, I do rent an apartment. So I need, uh, it's a good tool to have. And last year I got Tupperware and knives. Right. And I was thrilled and I still am. So what can I say? And Elijah and I are going to spend a whole day doing fun stuff and I can't wait. We're going to have a good time and it's going to be great. I'm so excited. I love birthdays. Yay. It's going to be awesome. And there's nothing truly that says Liz Corey's birthday like an episode of a podcast that I started with one of my best friends on a fucking cult. Who doesn't love a good cult story? We got a really good one for you today, guys. It's historical, which, yes, we realized that Pretty much all of these Halloween episodes this time around were historical. I feel like mostly, usually they are, and typically, and that's okay. It's usually our best work. Absolutely. We have the most fun with it. Yep. And there always is a little, like, weird, quirky part to it. Mm-hmm. And we had to close out the Spooky Halloween Spectacular Special VIP episodes with a really kooky, crazy case today. Mm. So it's going to be a good one for sure. Absolutely. And similarly to last year, we ended our Halloween spooky, extravagant, party time, haunting, excellent VIP party TM episodes with a cult as well. Interestingly enough, a satanic cult, quote unquote, this one is the opposite direction. It's actually just doesn't involve Satan at all, really. Yeah, it's like a Jesus lover cult. Yeah, like a second coming cult. It's very interesting. Which honestly, depending on what you believe in, could be worse than the satanic cult. There's, yeah, it's it's very interesting. And there's some talks of being visited by God. A lot of mental illness. A lot of mental illness, which perfect for my birthday. <laughs> it goes hand in hand. So naturally, we, of course, are very excited Especially me, and especially Katie, and all of us here at True Crime New England, which is just me and Katie. So, we hope you guys stick around. We, You know we love Halloween, we love these episodes, we love doing these fun little episodes for you guys. And next week we'll be back with our typical, um, more, of course, very seriously true crime-based episodes with our normal intro music. But 
We really hope you guys have enjoyed these episodes. We think you'll enjoy this one as well. They're definitely fascinating. And if you have not listened to our other Halloween episodes, we definitely encourage you to go back and listen to those. They're very fun isn't the right word, but they're more loose. Yeah. Definitely more relaxed fit. Without further ado, today we will be covering The The Wakeman Nights. All right, Katie, real quick, even though it is my birthday, I would like to extend a gift to you. I would really love it if you could just give me your sources. Liz, as a birthday gift, you know, I would do anything for you. Oh, I would love to give you my sources today. Thank you. I have information from our friends over at Murder by Gaslight Times 2. Oh! Hatch.kookscience.com Biblicalcyclopedia.com New York Times Times 2. Nice. And D-R-V-I-T-E-L-L-I dot typepad dot com. Okay. Interesting. I too used Murder by Gaslight and I loved every second of it. I used also the type pad that you refer to. I believe it was from the article or whatever, whoever wrote it. It was called Providentia. They called it Rhoda and the Antichrist, which is interesting. And I got a lot of information from them. They had a three-part article that was very good. Mm-hmm. I got an article from the Illuminati, which was cute. Kook Science as well. And an article from the Wellspring Newsletter. All right. Yeah, so we had a lot of different sources, a lot of same sources, a lot of good stuff. And for a historical case, pretty good information, which we've had a lot of luck with lately. Absolutely. So let's get into it. Liz, because it's your birthday, would you like to start us off by setting the scene? I would love to. Okay, where to begin? Well, let's start just very basic, a very broad overview The Wakemanites were essentially a mid-1850s cult based out of New Haven, Connecticut, that followed a woman named Rhoda Wakeman. So Rhoda Wakeman, born Rhoda Sly, she was roughly born in the year 1786. That can be debated, but that's around when she was born. That's a long time ago, which explains why she was able to run a cult. She was hardworking. That's not disputable. She was a housewife, of course. She couldn't have a job. It was the 1700s. And it depends on which source you read, but she had anywhere between 15 to 17 children, which unfortunately is fairly standard back then. Only nine survived past infancy, which, of course, is also fairly standard back then. Rhoda had earned the name Wakeman by marrying a man named Ira Wakeman in the year 1800 at the age of 24, roughly. Ira was a distiller, which I'm sure was fun for Rhoda. Actually, could women drink alcohol back then? I don't know. She definitely didn't marry him for the money, I'll tell you that much. Also, it was typical back then that, and I hate to say it, Ira was very abusive. And this included physically and emotionally, and because Rhoda was a woman, she just took it, because that was her job, essentially. She had to raise the kids, make the home, have dinner ready for Ira when he came home from the distillery, and that was it. That was the life you had to live. 
And she had lived that way for 25 plus years by the time we get to the story. Because again, that's just how you lived. She married young. Obviously, as we know, the life expectancy has grown considerably in more recent times. So by the time the Wakemans had been married for like 25 years, so now they were in their mid-40s, late 40s, 50s, their relationship was not only abusive, but absolutely foul. It had gotten so bad. The abuse was constant. And I feel like, again, pretty common. I feel like women couldn't escape it. Right. At this point in time. Because what are they going to do? Be an unwed woman? How are they supposed to work, get money, feed for themselves, own property? They couldn't even vote. Like, it was crazy. That was their only way to a life of any kind. You couldn't go move back in with your parents. Right. Probably because they were dead. They probably died at, like, 14. You know? Like, it's just not feasible. It's just not a thing. Divorce is not a thing. If it was, you'd be scorned for life. You just, there's no options. And that's really unfortunate. So Rhoda later claimed that Ira would often threaten to kill her pretty much every single night. And this was, again, like later in their relationship. It had gotten so bad. He even went as far to bring a very sharp razor to bed with them every night just to prove that at any moment he could slash her throat. Always threatening her. Like, I have you under my control. Always. Which... I can't imagine she ever slept well. Right. Ever. And she's obviously working very hard maintaining the household and raising nine kids. Like, that's... Ugh, this poor woman. And, I mean, we lose sympathy for her very quickly. But right now, that's, that is very unfortunate. In addition to threatening his wife, Ira also often played the pussy-ass move that we hear sometimes men play today. And he'd threaten to kill himself. Yes. Which is a great way to trap a woman. Or a man. In a relationship, because now you're making the other person feel real guilty. And that's not fair. And I'm surprised he was pulling this shit back into the 1800s. I know, that's some gaslighting by actual gaslight. Literally. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure back then, suicide was absolutely a sin. Oh, totally. More than ever before. So that's absolutely not Okay. Whenever he made the threat of, like, killing himself, he often claimed it was because, quote, the devil was ordering him to. So now he's saying, oh, I'm going to kill myself if you leave me or whatever. A, so bad, that's, you know, sinful. And then B, mentioning the devil? Bro, like, you're asking to be hung. Right. Like, if anyone found out about that, you'd be called a witch and hung immediately. Obviously, this is, like, 150 years post-Salem witch trials, give or take, but you... You shouldn't mention anything like that. People are still kind of tender from those moments, (laughs) you know? And then this next part we're about to get into is all claims that Rhoda makes later on in life that she used as the 100% foundation as the basis for her cult, the Wakemanites. And it all starts with one evening after many, many years of her sour, abusive relationship when Iris sat down with her after he supposedly made a, quote, profitable deal with hell, of course, the whole place, all of hell, to protect his own soul from internal damnation. So not only was this guy extremely selfish from doing this, he also was abusive. He was 
always threatening her. He was a terrible husband. He just, this guy was a piece of shit. Let's be real. Yeah. There's no doubting that. So I bet you're wondering, Katie, are you wondering why would this guy be sentenced to eternal damnation? Good question, Katie. I knew you were thinking it. Well, he would be going there for killing his wife. So once he got the all clear from the entirety of hell, he set his plan into action. So basically he had been having this thought, like, I just want to kill her. And he had been threatening her for years. So then when he got the go ahead from hell, the whole, you know, the whole place, he was like, well, perfect. I can get it done. So he was sitting next to his wife on this particular knife. He loudly threatened her. He had that sharp razor in his hand. He repeatedly cursed at her very loudly. And then he pulled a blistering hot metal brand from the fireplace and then stabbed it directly into Rhoda's heart. Now, I want you to remember, this is Rhoda telling the story. This isn't me, like, editorializing. This is Rhoda. All her accounts, okay? So, Katie, because you have more of, like, a religious background, <laughs> and I, you know, we all know how I am with religion, and I just couldn't do it justice like you can. You probably could paint a way better picture of what Rhoda um, experienced after she had a hot brand plunge into her hardworking housewife heart um, in the mid-1800s. I just couldn't understand. Rhoda said that she lost consciousness. And then before she knew it, she opened her eyes and two angels had appeared on either side of her. Wow. And they're glowing and they're beautiful. And she knew almost immediately they're angels and they're here for me. She wasn't scared. She wasn't frightened. Mm. She was almost comforted by their warm, glowing light. Yeah. She knew exactly what they were. Absolutely. And they both simultaneously brought their swords gently down on top of her to kind of like bestow her almost like a, a very gentle tap with the sword. Like she was being knighted? Almost. Okay. Almost. That's exactly where my mind went as well. Okay. And then as soon as they touched her with the swords, she went up to heaven. Mm. Rhoda said that she, you know, she's in heaven and it's beautiful and warm and glowing and just all these really nice colors. And she felt very safe and warm. Sure. Who enters the room but Jesus Christ himself? Jesus H. Christ. The man, the myth, the legend. She said he had the crown of thorns mm. still on him. Sure. The nails still in his hands. Ouch. Why wouldn't he take those out, you think? Also, wouldn't the thorns hurt still? Ah, but not in heaven where you don't feel any pain. You're right. And you are warm and safe and happy. You're right. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. It's my atheist ignorance coming that's in. That's all right. Don't doubt. She's saying she... Yeah, I know. Why did I even... <laughs> she said that she also saw God himself. God himself. Sitting up on his throne. Is that a different person? Oh, God. We need to... We'll save that conversation for later. We'll do a Bible study after this. Okay. <laughs> okay, thanks. So she's standing there and she's like, oh, Jesus. Literally and, you know, metaphorically sure. because Jesus is before her. Right. Oh, God. As she looks over at God. Right. Who is apparently a different person. Right. So she's exclaiming and she's... Quite literally just stating a fact. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> so she's taking all of this in. Wow, I'm in heaven. This is so great. I'm dead. This is fine. I'm up in heaven. Okay. And then a spirit grabbed her hand gently. Oh, good. 
and brought her down, soaring back down to earth. Oh. Where she looked upon her dead body on the floor. Mm. And this is when she knew that it was her destiny to return back to earth Mm. because she had to fulfill a mission. And you know what? According to Rhoda, she spent a blissful seven hours with God and Jesus just learning about her new prophecy, her new life. She was escorted back to her deceased human body Mm. by angels. And when she returned to her human form, she kept the ability to communicate directly with God and knew in her bones, in her soul, Mm. that it was her destiny to heal the sick, preach the gospel, and prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ. What? What a change in career from housewife to pretty much responsible for the living earth through basically being God's proxy in a way. That's a big change. And she's kind of like, she's middle-aged now, but like old back then. That's a lot of responsibility for someone who just died. Rhoda constantly insisted that God had entrusted her and only her Mm. with this power over the earth that only she had. Mm. And part of this power was to know of anyone's sins just by looking into their eyes. Wow. One other thing that she learned from God. So, you know, obviously she had a, Basically, like, she had a metal can with a string, and God had the other metal can. You know, it was like, they had the direct line, like you said. And it was once she was already back on Earth, and she was like, I have my duty. This is beautiful. I'm safe. I'm warm. I have this amazing power. She had this new, renewed sense of life that maybe people do once they die or they're like revived and whatever and they say oh I saw a bright light whatever so she's back and she's like this is great I'm like so thankful to be alive and then all of a sudden she like gets like a line of communication or whatever from an angel and basically the angel warns her and she's like there's a catch there was like a little like addendum that was like by the way so you can do all this you have all this you spread the good news you're so cool Rhoda by the way you do have a mortal enemy. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and he's going to do anything he can to kill you. Oops. Sorry. Um, and so she's sitting there like, what is happening? And obviously, I know you guys are wondering, who's the enemy? The Antichrist. Duh. So she's sitting here learning all this stuff. And it's seven blissful hours in heaven, whatever. And then she's back home and she's alive again. Yay. And then she's learning that, oh, the Antichrist is going to do anything it can to kill her. And then to make matters worse, well, here, here's the thing. If the Antichrist got his hands, does the Antichrist have a gender? If the Antichrist got its hands on Rhoda, then it was all over. Because for some reason, not only was Rhoda gifted the power of spreading the good news, having all this worth and prophetic powers on earth but also if she were to die the whole world was just going to end yeah and there would be no second coming of christ none so if she died before christ came and you know judgment day and Mm -hmm. you get to go to heaven you get to go to hell Mm -hmm. you get a car you get a car you get a right 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 then the whole world will just end that's it no judgment day for you and you know to be honest 
if I had to choose between a middle-aged woman who had 17 births and also just died and went to heaven and came back, or the Antichrist who was hunting you down in order to prevent the second coming, I'd probably go on the side of the Antichrist because that's a pretty convincing um, battle. So she just all of a sudden was like, well, now I'm fucked because I'm, if I ever die again, that's it. The whole world is over. So that's a lot of information to take in after you've been stabbed in the heart and then revived somehow and are miraculously recovered and don't have any injuries. And again, remember guys, this is what she based her entire cult off of. That was the whole philosophy was I went to heaven. I now have this job. P.S. The Antichrist is searching me out. If I die, you all die. So bow down to me, fuckers. Rhoda went around door to door Mm. telling anyone that would listen. I just got back from heaven. I saw God. I saw Jesus. I'm, I'm it. Like, I'm the one. I'm the one. Yeah, sure. Not Jesus, me. Right. I'm the one. Yeah. You want to yeah. live in your house and live your life, or do you want to follow me? Mm-hmm. And she actually gathered like a dozen people to follow her, which I thought was really interesting because uh, Jesus had a dozen people following him around. Yeah. So I think that was probably intentional. I think a 13th probably tried to join. She was like, go back to your hut over there. No, thank you. Right. Her followers that she gathered called her the Widow Wakeman, or the Prophetess. Which is, you know... That's pretty... Yeah, it's pretty pretty cool. It's a pretty powerful title. Right? Yeah. And they would go to her house eventually, every Sunday for meetings, to hear about her peculiar stories, her views about the Bible, and her experience in the spiritual world. That's how it was written in an article that I saw. Mm. She also... A lot of her beliefs were that she renounced the idea of marriage... Which is interesting, because she was married, still. Mm. She said that men and women should live freely Mm. and free themselves from the earthly lusts that existed only to corrupt them. Mm. She was constantly telling them, God entrusted me with this power over earth. I only had this power. No one else has this power. It's me. I'm special. Everyone follow me. Mm. Even though it's a big part of the Bible, to acknowledge and forgive sins, you know, cleanse yourself of sins, forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. True. Rhoda was not about to forgive the sins of her abusive husband. You know what? Fine. Can't say I blame her. No. So after going around door to door and gathering these loyal followers, she basically had them test their loyalty to her by tying up her husband and then stabbing him repeatedly. You gotta be real loyal. But then again, the fear of God and the devil was so real at this time period that if this woman says she talks to God and the devil is out for her and if she dies, everyone dies, I mean, I would do what she says. Yeah, they thought that the wind blowing was like the work of God. Right. Yeah. Or that if someone made you a pie and it was burnt, actually... Or if someone baked you bread and it was a little burnt, they were trying to sabotage you because they were a witch. Right. So they really didn't have a great grasp on scientific explanations, how nature worked. No. Reason. Reason. (laughs) Exactly. So Ira died soon after this attack, even though the cult somehow wasn't held responsible. Mm. 
Rhoda claimed that her husband was possessed because, I mean, he was constantly telling her, the devil is telling me to kill you, mm -hmm. and I'm possessed by the devil, and hell gave me permission to kill you, so look out, bitch, here I come with the flaming hot poker. Right. Rhoda took it a step further and said that she saw, quote, streams of fire fly out of the eyes of her husband and had seen little devils about two feet high dance around him in the room. Oh. Okay, so she's schizophrenic. Right. After her husband died, was murdered. Right. Rhoda moved to New Haven, Connecticut with a man that was technically her half-brother, Samuel Sly, mm. also called Elder Sly. Mm. Samuel was described as being, quote, very good, harmless, prayerful man who always spoke like a child, and he had a reputation for being pretty simple-minded. Yeah. It sounded like he had probably a developmental disability or, you know, maybe he just was pretty, you know, simple. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. No. Rhoda liked that Samuel was simple because he was especially vulnerable to her ranting and raving. Oh, yeah. And he became kind of the prophetess's right hand. Yeah. Absolutely. So in the year 1855, which was roughly like 25-ish, 30 years of this absolute madness of chatting with God, running from the Antichrist, whatever. Her husband's been dead for years. She's free of marriage. She expects everyone to be free of marriage. Suddenly, Rhoda developed some inexplicable body pains that were quite severe and uncomfortable. They were probably inexplicable because it was 1855. And modern medicine clearly was nowhere near where it is now. And a lot of things just weren't explainable back then. So Rhoda knew how the pain got to her, whether it was because she talked to God, whether it was because the pain talked to her. I don't know. She knew the origin. She knew it hard. So Rhoda said she knew where the pain came from. Again, God, the Antichrist, whatever. She said it was because one of the followers, which again, never really got above like a dozen followers, he had stopped coming to their weekly meetings. And that really, uh, really did her wrong. So why did he stop? She wondered. And, um, you know, she thought about it and she finally came to a conclusion and it really tied in with why she was feeling pain. And, you know, when you think about it, it kind of makes sense. He became possessed by an evil spirit. So she was like, okay, so this guy, he was a follower. Now he's not. I'm experiencing pain. Evil spirit in the follower. Zip, zap, zap. Like, it's done. She really was convinced. So this evil spirit, who had sunk its proverbial claws into a follower named Hustis Matthews, was causing immense pain to Rhoda, yes, but he was also a massive threat. Because what if the spirit killed her? The whole world would be over. Just like that. And Rhoda couldn't stand to think that may happen. And it turned out this evil spirit had been jumping between some followers. And the final victim wasn't going to be Rhoda. It was going to be Hustis. And Rhoda was going to put a stop right there. So Rhoda believed that this spirit was originally in her husband. Mm. We know that. You know, he would always say, oh, the devil has me. I talk to hell and I can kill you. And right. we know that. Right. 
he would tell her all the time, right. the devil's inside me, yada, yada, yada. Same. She was convinced that when they murdered her husband, that spirit came out of him and transferred to another member of the cult named Eben Gould. Mm. You know, Eben, kind of unsuspecting, just happened to be in the room. Yeah. Eben transferred it to another member named Amos Hunt. Some classic names here. Amos gave it to Hustis. Naturally, next steps. Just like an STD, mm. spreading between members, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Absolutely. The story with Amos Hunt is that he and his wife baked a pie for the group, and multiple members got sick after eating it. Mm-hmm. So instead of thinking, you know, there's no real sanitary water, maybe it's just a little touch of food poisoning, maybe it's just a little dink. I mean, we all did eat that weird-tasting stew before the pie. Mm-hmm. Rhoda knew, knew, without a doubt, that the pie was poisoned. Yep. Because Amos was possessed and trying to kill her to prevent the second coming of Christ and to end the whole world. Of course. Rhoda said that Amos needed to be a living sacrifice to God. But Amos got out of that one unscathed by giving the group $500. Which, that's a lot of money back then. In today's money? That's so much. That's easily over like $10,000. Yeah. Probably more than that. Amos ended up filing a lawsuit to get his money back, but that's a story for another day. Yeah, that's, that's, I didn't know you could pay off the Antichrist or whatever. That's really interesting. So I guess with that act mm-hmm. of being so kind and generous and mm-hmm. donating all of that money to the group, yeah. he rid himself of the evil spirit, mm-hmm. but then gave it to Hustis. Oh, poor Hustis. If only he had $501. The loyal Wakemanites understood that there was urgency in this matter. Of course. They all banded together to rid Hustis of this spirit. To save Hustis, they couldn't have him running around, not going to meetings, conspiring against Rhoda. Of course. And they cannot have Rhoda's life on the line. Because then, by extension, all of their lives are on the line. Right, and they want to meet Jesus. Of course. Rhoda got to meet Jesus. They want to meet him when he comes back for Judgment Day or whatever. And they've been loyal for 25 plus years, right? So... That's not fair. I could see in that time probably being right, you know, like that. Okay, fine. Hustis Matthews' sister, Polly Sanford, went to his home with her husband, Almiron Sanford, who also was a loyal member of the Wakemanites. Sure. To talk with Hustis. The pair convinced Hustis to attend a meeting with the rest of the group. You know, it'll be fine. You haven't gone in a while. Mm -hmm. It'll be a good... Meeting to get you back into the faith and mm-hmm. the groove and, you know, we've all missed you. Yeah. We need our 12th disciple. I mean, member. <laughs> right. This meeting where Hustis was like, all right, guys, fine. Will you stop bothering me if I just go? Yeah. Was on Sunday, December 23rd, 1855, otherwise known as Christmas Eve Eve. Unofficially. But we all call it that. Let's be real. On this day... The group had been there since 2 p.m., singing and praying very loudly. Hustis did make an appearance. He didn't get there till 9 p.m., which is what they told him. Like, that's what was... So they spent seven hours praying and singing and getting ready, whatever, at the instruction of Rhoda. And so once he got there, he learned 
the very unfortunate fact that he did not know that his body was possessed by an evil spirit. So can you imagine walking into that meeting and being like, hey guys, I miss, you know, I, I did miss you, you know, you know what's the, an evil spirit in me? Oh, in me, in my book. And you have to get, mm. uh, coming mom. Like he just, like, I can't imagine the fear he felt in his body. Like I bet he knew it was the end. Right after being there, through all of that, he probably got some of the cash money from Amos. Yeah. He might have even been there when they all killed Rhoda's husband. Very well may have been. Although, because of the times and because, you know, beliefs were so strong back then, when he found out that he had an evil spirit inside him, he was terrified. He wanted nothing more than to get that shit out of his body, quote unquote. And he was actually, honestly, like, even though he hadn't been attending meetings, he was really upset that it was, quote, hurting the prophetess. And he was kind of eager to get it out of him and so it could help her. But I don't think he knew directly, like, it was going to end his life. Which it did. Spoiler. <laughs> One member tied a handkerchief over his eyes with the purpose of, quote, diminishing the power of the spirit, naturally. And also to prevent Eustace from, quote, enchanting anyone with his eyes. His hands were tied behind his back because that is what they would have done if they were doing this to the devil, obviously. So it kind of just made sense to keep it, you know, it's only fair. No discrimination here. So Eustace was left alone in this room, blindfolded, tied up, unable to move, while the Wakemanites filtered in and out until 2 a.m., spending most of their time praying in a different room. The occasional visits by each member were attempts to, quote, beseech the evil spirit from his soul. All of the Wakemanites, especially, including Rhoda, told Eustace that it would obviously be better if he were to die, because the alternative was Rhoda, and that meant the end of the world. And nobody wants that. And so according to everyone that was there that night, and we all obviously don't have Eustace's testimony, they all said that Eustace was a-okay with that, totally down with the plan, absolutely fair, keep living, guys, I'll take the bullet for this one. And he was really considerate of the circumstances. Is that true? Maybe. People were religious as fuck and crazy back then. Could it also be not true? Yes. He could have very much been like, can you not? Like, stop this right now. Your prayers have worked. Oh my God, he's gone. You know, like, crazy. So, the next morning, when Eustace didn't come home, his son went searching for him. Because his son knew that his dad regularly attended these meetings, or used to anyway, at the cottage of Samuel Sly. That was the first place he looked. And what, what did he find when he peered through the windows, walked in the door? But his father and a lot a lot of blood so much blood for somebody with an evil spirit taking up a lot of space he had more blood in there than you would have thought and this poor kid i mean the son was 19 years old yeah willard matthews he actually broke down the door because he wasn't getting an answer and he knew like my dad's in there yeah he always goes to these meetings he told me he was gonna go he didn't really want to go but he went yeah. and he never came home so he's in there Willard found that Eustace was murdered. Murdered. There is no other explanation. No. 
his throat had been slit almost to the point of him being decapitated. Mm-hmm. He was cut literally from ear to ear. His wrists had really significant ligature marks from where he was bound. They found a small rope on the floor, mm-hmm. and his abdomen was covered with small puncture wounds, just like he'd been stabbed repeatedly with a small object all over the place. Yeah. A newspaper article at the time wrote, quote, When first discovered, the body lay on the floor with the head towards a bed in the room, and it was found with the face turned toward the window, lying upon the left side, and lay very neatly in the middle of the room. Clotted blood and hair lay on the floor around him, and several pools of blood were found near his head. It was truly an awful scene to witness. Mm. The throat was cut nearly from ear to ear, and his head seemed to be nearly severed from his body. Terrible. Willard frantically ran next door to get a neighbor to bear witness to the scene, because... You know, it's his word against everybody else's. There's, It's not like he could just take a picture. And he also probably was incredulous. He probably was not even really comprehending fully the scene that he was looking at. I mean, that's his dad. Right. So he got a neighbor. The neighbor ran in and was like, oh, shit, I'm seeing what you're seeing. Let me go get help. And ran to the police. Yeah. Everybody knew who it was immediately. A, the location. Everybody knew that the Wakemanites met there. B, it was kind of sacrificey in a way. It looked a little... It was very bloody. There was ligature marks. He had puncture wounds. Everybody knew, wrote on her message and blah, blah, blah. It was pretty obvious. A coroner's jury was gathered and, you know, they were able to gather very quickly testimony from the Wakemanites who were there that night. And unsurprisingly characteristic of most cults, All of the believers testified that they believed completely that if Rhoda were to die, then the whole world was just going to end. So they all believed that Hustis had killed himself in order to get rid of that evil spirit and save the rest of them. Which is, you know, interesting because it's really hard to cut yourself from ear to ear so severely that you're almost decapitated. Your body is made so that your reflexes don't, you can't do that so deep in a way that you can make it. And plus, you also will die before you get to the other side. Right. It's like the same thing as, you know, kids that are like, I'm going to hold my breath until you give me a cookie. Yeah. I'll pass out. And yeah. then their body just doesn't let them. Yeah. Maybe they do pass out, but their the- nervous system and everything kicks in and they're breathing again. Same thing as trying to drown yourself yes. by just laying in a bathtub. Yeah. Your body's not going to let you. Gouging out your own eyes. Your body's not going to let you unless there's something really heftily psychological going on upstairs. Right. You have to be pretty impaired to sabotage your body's natural reflexes and instincts. Especially when your hands are bound behind your back. Oh, yes, that part. Interesting. And unfortunately for everyone, Samuel, Rhoda's brother, Elder Sly, who you mentioned was described as simple. And probably had a developmental disorder. He ended up giving a full confession, which immediately threw Rhoda, Samuel himself, and three other followers in prison. The rest of them were set free. And man, was that a mistake for poor Samuel. But I don't think he knew any better. I thought, I bet he he just thought he was being, he was just being honest. Right. He was just telling the truth. and Because he, he thought they did the right thing, I'm sure. He saved his sister. Samuel said that his sister was so distressed by the evil spirit in Hustis that he knew he had to take action to remove it himself. No. 
as everyone was leaving or getting ready to leave, you know, they stayed until two o'clock in the morning. They mm-hmm. were all going in and out, in and out, praying over him, mm-hmm. telling him to beseech the devil, the evil spirit. And then they just went home. They trickled out of the house and went home. Mm-hmm. Samuel couldn't really go home because it was his home. Oh, true. He was already home, right? So he said that he went to the living room where Eustace was still blindfolded and still bound and locked the door. He picked up a piece of witch hazel wood that was two feet long, like a a club, Mm. and used this to beat Eustace across the head and continued to beat him repeatedly even once he collapsed onto the floor. Mm. He took out his pocket knife with a two-inch long blade and slit Eustace's throat before repeatedly stabbing him in the chest, stomach, and the rest of his lower abdomen with a fork. Wow. Samuel then went to Thankful Hersey, who was a member of the cult. She actually lived in the house. She had her own bedroom. I think she might have rented or something. Mm. And she brought him a basin full of water so he could wash himself off with all of the blood splatter. Right. They both ripped up his blood-soaked shirt into shreds to burn it in the stove. Mm. Samuel also broke up the wooden club into three separate pieces and threw that and the pocket knife into the privy vault, which is like a deep hole or a well where everything from the bathroom emptied into, which is kind of like our modern day septic tanks. Sure. Thankful. Great name. (laughs) Great name. I wonder if she changed it when she joined the cult. Ugh. Yeah, probably. Got a very religious culty sound to it. Yeah. She was one of the ones that had been arrested, mm-hmm. along with a man named Israel Wooding, Almerin and Polly Sanford, of course, because they're the ones that got him to go over to the house in the first place. Right. A woman named Abigail Sables, a man named Josiah Jackson, and then, of course, Samuel and their beloved prophetess were all hanging out together behind bars. Naturally. So while Rhoda, Samuel, Thankful Hersey, all them were locked in jail... Another tragic crime was brewing. On January 1st, 1856, barely a week, barely, not even two, after Hustis was murdered, the nephew of Hustis, Charles Sanford, made some brutal and unfortunate decisions. Charles, who was described by some as, quote, odd-looking, I mean, who among us, was 27 years old at this time, and he had some medical problems that included one club foot, And a long, long list of mental illness, which that, you know, back then, mental illness wasn't really a thing. So it was kind of like he was probably, it was kind of ignored more in that he was just crazy or the devil, things like that. And he spent a lot of time in, like, makeshift insane asylums. He, like his uncle, was also a member of the Wakemanites. And although Charles wasn't there at the exorcism that fateful December night that ended in the death of his uncle... He had proven to his fellow believers and his leaders that he, too, trusted the word of the widow Wakeman. Charles had recently been suffering from stomach cramps, which couldn't be explained because it was the 1850s, as I said earlier. And due to this, you know, evil spirit surrounding the religious sect, he was like, oh, these cramps I'm having are from an evil spirit. And so he was like, I just have to find who has the evil spirit. And take care of it. Like, it. once I get rid of it, I'll be okay. And they were really hurting him. And I think because he was mentally ill, he thought this was the best way to go about it. 
They didn't have Tums back then, so that was the only alternative. Do you think he just had heartburn? Oh, can you imagine? Gas pain? Oh, he killed someone over farts? That's so sad. I bet you probably. So on January 1st, 1856, like I said, Charles left the home where he lived with his parents and was carrying a freshly sharpened axe. Now this sounds kind of creepy, but it wasn't a weird sight because Charles was actually a very talented woodsman. And even though he wasn't the brightest, he was good at his job. And so when people saw that uh, he was carrying an axe, they were like, oh, Charles heading to work, whatever, you know, no big deal. And, you know, he just went about walking the streets of New Haven. Several hours after Charles was seen leaving his home, he ran into his 69-year-old neighbor, a well-loved and successful farmer, Enoch Sperry, which is, again, a great name. Charles most certainly knew Enoch, not only because of the community, but also because Enoch was a customer of Rhoda. Many different types of healing compounds that he bought from her in the past. He was constantly buying things. He also was just well-known for his farming. He was a well-liked guy. He was in the political community a little bit. Like, he was just well-known. It was a small community, whatever. When Charles ran into Enoch, for literally no explainable reason, he immediately started attacking the farmer with his axe, striking him in the skull. Just, oh, hey, Charles, bang! Like, what? So random. Charles hacked at his skull so many times as to fracture it and nearly decapitated him in the process. And then he simply ran off. After wandering around aimlessly for several hours, Charles wandered into the home of another elderly farmer named Ichabod Umberfield. Great name. All these are going on my baby name list. Just kidding. We gotta bring some of these names back. Ichabod? Come on. Thankful? Great. Ichabod was a little more on the wealthy side, and he had what was referred to in articles as a housekeeper, but most likely what Liz just pointed out to me is most likely a slave. Yeah. So Ichabod had most likely a slave and the slave's daughter. They were both there. They both kind of help out around the house as they were purchased to do. So awful. Anywho, both of the women immediately panicked. Because Charles just entered the house Mm. with an axe. And he probably was covered in blood from earlier. Oh, absolutely. And he's waving around this axe and he's just... He also had a bloody wooden club because he had used the axe to shave off pointy ends on either side of this club. Yeah. Which I also think is interesting because it was a witch hazel club, much like the one that had killed his uncle. Interesting. As they were running to safety and trying to barricade themselves in the bedroom, they hollered out a warning call to Ichabod. And, you know, he was trying to de-escalate the situation. He was very calm. He was telling Charles, you know, everything's okay. Put down the weapons. And Charles responded to this by picking up the axe and driving it into Ichabod's head three separate times. Mm -hmm. The housekeeper's daughter saw some of this go down. She must have peeked her head out the door to see, okay, is this scene safe? And she started screaming, just blood-curdling shrieking. And Charles looked at her and told her, quote, stop your noise or you'll get your head chopped off. Mm -hmm. And then he walked outside and started cleaning his axe in the snow. So awful. At this point, Enoch's brutally murdered body had been discovered 
And thanks to some recent snowfall, the police were able to track a trail of dripping blood to the house Ichabod owned and found Charles still wielding the bloodied and now damaged axe. After quite the tussle with the investigators, the police, whatever you want to call them back then, which actually involved cutting an officer with the axe, like in the struggle, Charles was arrested. Charles was charged with the two murders immediately and gave only one reason as to why he killed the two local farmers. He claimed that he killed the men because he thought it would rid him of the inexplicable and uncomfortable cramps that he had been having. Simple as that. Charles was convicted of the murders, and he was sentenced to hang. He was. It was a very quick trial. Like, it happened in a few months, and the actual trial itself was very brief. However, Charles managed to avoid being hung. Because just a few months after being thrown in jail, he died of what was most likely tuberculosis. So, arguably, was that a worse death? Probably, because hanging... Well, usually faster than tuberculosis. Depends on how well you hang someone. Yeah. So he got out of that scotch-free, but meh. Meanwhile, don't you guys forget, we have some friends in jail waiting their fate. Rhoda, Samuel Sly, we got Thankful Hersey. They're all waiting for their fate. In April, they were all tried for the murder of Hustis Matthews. All of them are sticking to their story. They're saying, Hustis was possessed. We were saving the world. We were saving you, jurors, you, judge, us, humanity, and our prophetess, Rhoda. Duh. We did this for the greater good. Mm -hmm. Pretty quick decision. Mm -hmm. Jury's like, no, we know these people. Jury of their peers. Mm -hmm. Really not a fair trial, you know, still in their kind of region. However... Mm -hmm. All of them knew these people are fucking batshit crazy. Mm -hmm. On April 17th, 1988, the jury found them all not guilty by reason of insanity. And they were all sent to the insane retreat in Hartford, Connecticut. That's literally what it was called. To live out the rest of their days and pray and worship and await the second coming of Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. The public response, actually, you know, sometimes the verdict is given and there's people protesting outside Mm -hmm. of the courthouse. Everyone just kind of shrugged their shoulders. They were like, yeah, yeah, that's fair. They are pretty uh, not guilty by reason of insanity. Yeah, pretty nuts. Which is so interesting because they got an insanity plea, essentially. Right. And Charles, who had a history in psychiatric facilities. Yeah was given the death penalty, and a lot of people speculate that it was because he killed Anak, who was pretty well-known, very well-liked, and also a political figure. Right. After these convictions, Thankful Hersey was actually released pretty soon after into the community because so many people from the town wrote, like, positive letters about her and were like, no, she's a good lady, and so she got released. Fortunately, she died the next year, so she didn't really... Probably just from being a woman. I don't know. So, unfortunately, she didn't really get to be free for long. Rhoda, she remained in the asylum, which was a terrible experience for her, until she died there in 1859, which was just a few, like, four years later. Not even. At the age of 74, which is very old for the time. That's really impressive. Yeah. And, surprise, the world didn't end when she died. Spoiler alert. Samuel, surprisingly, lived the longest spending almost 10 years in the asylum, 
where he suffered from great mental illness. Um, he often ranted about many things from the Bible, including the Antichrist, the Second Coming, and he also often claimed he was the prophet Elijah, so nothing new there. Um, he eventually died of starvation in 1865 because he just stopped. He refused to eat. I think that was part of probably his mental illness. And Wow. Yeah. So after their sentencing, though, the Wakemanites soon disappeared and nothing was ever heard from their remaining followers ever again. Their cult died out. Good. It was kind of really stupid. <laughs> I mean, how many cults have you ever heard of that have a woman leader? It's pretty rare. Yeah, that's crazy. And they probably took one look at her and they were like, wow, you're so old and you're in such good shape. You must have been touched by God because nothing has taken you out. Right. That's probably the equivalent of like 115 years old today. Right. 74 is very old. That's insane. And again, she had so many children and she was abused and she lived very long. She worked hard. It's pretty impressive. I will not lie. And she was cuckoo. So, I mean, guys, that does it for our 2023 installment of our Halloween extravaganza, spooky, extra VIP, party time, extravagant, extra fun, gnarly TM episodes. And we had so much fun and we hope you did too. Absolutely. If you want to let us know what you think about this case... Like, for example, do you think Rhoda, Samuel, and Thankful Hersey are insane? Do you think they killed Hustis Matthews? The answer is yes, but what do you think really happened? Please let us know. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at TrueCrimeNE. All lowercase. Or you can send us an email with your thoughts at TrueCrimeNE at gmail.com. We, of course, have a website, truecrimene.com. You can go to our contact page and use our handy-dandy submission tool and use that to send us your thoughts, questions, comments, concerns. Listen to other Halloween episodes we've done over the years. Crazy we can say that now. I know. But even just over this past month, we've done quite a few. And, you know, I feel like these are some of the episodes where we have the most fun with. Absolutely. Especially with cases like today. So share your thoughts. We're really trying to get ahead of the game for next year, so you could use our Handy Dandy submission tool to send us case suggestions for our next year's Halloween special spooky party time extravaganza VIP TM episodes, or even just cases based in New England police in general. You can be anonymous always, but if you leave your name, that's a really good way to get a shout out if we end up covering the episode. And yeah, honestly, thank you guys so much for being here and listening always, but especially for our Halloween episodes. We just have so much fun with them and we cannot thank you guys enough for listening and being here. Absolutely. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.